So the book of Ezra is at the very end of the historical books. Um, I shouldn't say the book of Ezra is a historical book, but um, first, second Samuel, first and second Kings, first uh, and, and second Chronicles about the history of David, I mean, history of the kings of Israel uh, and with sort of the um, initial, what would you say, uh, foundation of King David, who is the first king in the messianic line. And um, we were in Samuel through Chronicles for a whole number of years. We found out at the very end they, uh, there was just this, um, this chronic problem with the people of um, Israel returning to idolatry, returning to sin, their prophets. Um, it says at the end of Chronicles, God sent them early um, every morning to warn the people. They warned, they warned, they warned, they weren't warned. Specifically, the warning was God's going to remove you from this land if you continue in the way that you're going. And uh, they couldn't imagine anything ever like that happening. The temple was such a big deal. It was, they, they couldn't imagine the time that the temple would be, um, uh, could be uh, destroyed and broken down. Um, and so they just had a false sense of security just because of the religion that had been established in the area. But um, finally, when the pattern of going anti-idolatry um, reached uh, just the point, where, reached a point where um, God gave them over um, to judgment, and the Babylonians came in and completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, everything. And the Israelites, uh, many of them, were carried back in chains to Babylon, which is 900 miles away. And the prophet Jeremiah, who was prophesied to the last king uh, in power, uh, Zedekiah, uh, he had prophesied that the exile would be 70 years. And so... Um, they were out of the land for 70 years, but at the beginning of uh, 70 years, Babylon um, had lost power. The Persians were um, in power, and Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, issued a declaration for basically inviting any Jews who wanted to go back to uh, the land of Israel and to build the temple again. And so they did. That's the beginning. The first six chapters were about that. They went back and under a man named Zerubbabel, and uh, they began rebuilding, but they got some opposition, so they stopped. And I think they, how, how, I can't remember exactly how long they stopped. Um, for, well, 15 years, they just stopped. Uh, they never should have. Uh, you should never stop w serving the Lord. 
just because there's opposition in your life, ever. You just need to continue going on. But they did. They stopped. Um, but then after about 15 years, um, the fiery prophet Haggai came, got up right in their face, began to prophesy to them, saying, why are you guys uh, building houses of cedar? Houses paneled with cedar. I was just in the Amazon region where there's all kinds of illegal cedar um, loggers there, and I would run into them in my travels. And I kept, you know, cedar's like red gold. I mean, you just see these, these trees that they cut down, and you're thinking, wow. Uh, it's so heavy. I think termites can't do anything to them that's valuable. But he said, uh, you're building houses with this in incredibly val valuable wood, but the, the temple is still left unfinished, yet God called you to do that. He also sent the book of, um, sent the prophet Zechariah, um, uh, who gave them visions uh, to encourage them. And so uh, they got up and they obeyed the Lord and they just started building the temple again and uh, to its completion. And so we learned that time, I just spent a lot of time, don't stop on that thing that the Lord is telling you to do, no matter how much opposition. And opposition will always, it often takes, it is very, very, very intense. Don't stop. Um, but anyway, they wound up finishing it, and um, it says in verse 22 of chapter um, 6, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread. So they, they kept the Passover feast, and it says um, they, 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 they celebrated it with joy, for the Lord made them joyful. And he will do that with you if you are obedient. There is a promise of joy. It says, uh, and so they finished that. The, they finished the um, the house of the Lord. The temple was rebuilt, and one of the things that was told the prophet Haggai, that the Haggai told the people, is, "Listen, the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the first one," which is pretty amazing, since the first one, basically, the whole thing was made out of gold or overlaid with gold. But what was going to make the second temple more glorious was that Jesus Christ the Son of God, would actually be inside of it, working inside of it. And so um, with that, we pick up in chapter 7, 58 years have passed by. So in between chapter 7, the... Um, in between chapter 6 and chapter 7, the temple had been completed for 58 years, and that's when this guy Ezra who apparently wrote this book, comes in. He's going to come in. It says, verse 1, Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, uh, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, 
the son of Shalem, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merath, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishai, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This guy is a direct descendant from Moses' brother, Aaron, who was Moses' spokesman when the Israelites were rescued from Egypt. That's who this guy, Ezra, is. It says, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now that's going to occur six times from now to the end of the book of Ezra. The hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And uh, if you are spiritually in tune with the Lord, you will know and understand and be aware that the hand of the Lord your God is upon you. And you will be giving him credit for that. So we'll see. Um, for with each step, it's going to say the, land, the hand of the Lord your God where Lord his God was upon him. You know, um, when I was in this Amazon region the last, for, for three weeks, uh, we were, I was up in the mountains and I just every day, really, for four to seven hours, I was just walking around praying and uh, reciting scriptures. And one time I was in the middle of, uh, I wish I had the picture, I have it in my, I was in the middle of this area where it was just very jungle-like, and then after a while I, I realized I lost my phone, which had my credit cards and my driver's license in it. Now there's, there's better, things that can, uh, better things that can happen to you than losing your phone in the middle of the Amazon, thousands of miles away from home. <laughs> and uh, I knew there was like a 300-yard not 300 yards, about a half a mile walk where I had lost it. I'm just walking around, and uh, this, is, this is not a good thing. And uh, there's just these two guys I ran into. It was just so highly unusual. They were just there because one of their fathers ha had a little plot of land there where he was growing tangerines. I didn't meet a single person there other than myself the whole three weeks that was just there for leisure, except these two guys. And they're, they're like, what are you doing? I'm looking for my phone. Well, we're going to help you. So these guys wind up um, sticking with me for the next few hours, basically. And finally, because my daughter, Faith, was at home, you know, at NASA Control with iPhone Finder. These guys just happened to have an Apple because one of them was from Spain. No one has Apple phones um, in, in Peru, very few people. Um, and his friend had another phone. He was able to pick up the signal. But there's it, the whole picture was so weird because I never met another person there for leisure the whole time. 
they were just there working, cutting down cedar trees, or, or, or they were farmers. They never, in, ever, ever would have stopped and helped this gringo, um, this foolish, foolish gringo. And, and so, um, but there's no doubt at all that the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, because <laughs> that really would have affected the trip in like the biggest way, because I wasn't even halfway through the trip. And so, um, he's like that with your life. If you're walking in the Spirit, does any of you guys remember the three things associated with walking with the Spirit? I will be so impressed. I will be so unbelievably impressed. Anyone want to start shouting out? There was three things. What is walking in the Spirit? Number one? I, I may not even remember them. No, no, no. That's, that, those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, number one, is your surrender to the Spirit. Number two is listening to the voice of the Spirit. There's someone back there reading, Jeremy's reading notes. And what's the third one? And drawing from the strength of the Spirit. If you're doing those things, walking in the Spirit, meaning you're surrendered hour by hour to the Lord, to the Spirit. Number two, you're listening to the voice of the Spirit which is the voice of the Spirit is in the Word of God, but it's also the still small voice. And the third one is drawing on the strength of the Spirit. The hand of the Lord God will be upon you. And you'll be able to recognize it. And so six times we read this, this phrase, the hand of the Lord God was upon him. Verse 7 says, Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On that day... Um, of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of, a, uh, of his God upon him. So there it goes, number two. Verse 10. So this is the reason that he came to Jerusalem. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, number one. Number two, if you have a pen, you should be writing this right into your Bible, the little numbers. Number two, to teach, uh, rather to do it. And number three, to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, Stephanie and I, tomorrow night, I hope you can join us. We're going to be teaching on how to have a, a devotion. One of the things I always do, anytime you have a list, Write out the things and number them. Anytime you see a list, this is a list right here. There's a list of three things. But what I, fi what I find is really interesting, so the book of Ezra is about building the temple. The book of Nehemiah is about building the walls around the temple. But Ezra goes up there in the last four or five chapters or just about him. He doesn't go up to build any physical thing. He goes simply to teach them the word of God. He had gotten word that here you have this temple and there were people worshiping in this temple 
and they didn't know the Word of God. And I've experienced uh, helping out a pastor before who became a pastor, and he found out once he got into his church that the people just didn't know the Bible. And I taught at the place, and it was just really interesting, teaching the Word of God when you know the people don't know the Bible. One of the greatest things about teaching at Calvary Chapel is when I'm, when I'm out there on Sunday, and definitely on Tuesday night, it's obvious that about two-thirds of the people really know the Word of God. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's such a healthy thing. But this guy actually went, so the rest of this book is for one purpose, to talk about a guy who went to teach the Word of God. Because a church without people who know the Word of God is a weak church. A temple without the people who, and we're going to read about it, this is one weak, shallow group of people that he, he went to see. A church without the word of God is, is, is a church where there will be no fr fruit. And like Ephesians 4, like children being tossed, and, tossed to and about by every wind of doctrine, just a mess. He had prepared his heart to seek the law. We've been studying so much about that word, that just that word seek, which is so incredibly minimized and trivialized and not even spoken of in the body of Christ today, even though it, it is like used so often in the Bible, seek God, not just know God, seek him, seek God. But number two, to do it. For he had prepared his heart to seek the law, uh, uh, the law of the Lord and to do it. There is a book that, um, you know, every, every preacher has a few books that he thinks that every single Christian in the entire world should read. So I have th three books in that category, but, th in, but number one is this book called Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. It is just, uh, yeah. the, the other two, by the way, are <laughs> Robert Coleman's book, Master, uh, uh, Master Plan of, of Evangelism, and the third one is Charles Finney's autobiography. But number one is Ian Bounce's Power Through Prayer, and the whole thing is about the importance of a life that is just doing the Word of God and breathing the Word of God and prepared by the Word of God. And, and, and the book is about prayer. And prayer is, is part of the way to get there. Now, one of, this, one, one of his great lines in this book, and this book is so powerful. I, I read it with the pastor that I was just with uh, in Peru in, in Spanish. We're, we're about halfway through or something like that. But one of the best things is, is that um, a sermon prepared by a man of God who's really uh, called by God, the, the sermon has been prepared for the last 20 years, meaning 20 years of character building. It says of Ezra, he prepared his heart to seek the Lord, but number two, he did it. He did it. And pastors who can get up and, and, and speak 
in, in a gifted way, I just think they're a dime a dozen, but one that has the the power of an obedient life behind them. That's, that's the pastor, that's the teacher, those are the leaders that you want. And the third one is to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this is fascinating. I don't know if you knew this about the book of Ezra. But the last half of the book is has nothing to do with building the temple or building a building or building walls. It's to go and teach the Bible. That is what it's, that's what Ezra um, has been called to do. And so he's in Babylon, which by this time is not the ruling power of the world. Persia is. Babylon's a, a, t- a province of Persia at this time. King Artaxerxes is the, um, is the, is the Persian emperor. It says, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of, of his statutes to Israel. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings. Now, I know we, we associate king of kings with Jesus, but here, the, this is like the Roman emperor was a king of kings as well because, for example, King Herod was a king under Caesar and, or Augustus. Um, this guy is a king of kings too, meaning kings reported to him. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, describe the love of the, of the law of the God of heaven. Now, the fact that he is saying this doesn't mean he's a, a Christian or a believer in Jehovah. He's not. He's a pagan. Um, but he, he had been given favor by Ezra. I mean, Ezra had been, just had favor in his eyes. Why? Just like Daniel, because just as we heard last week with Solomon, because he just, again, power of prayer by Ian Bounds. He had the power of an obedient life. And even a pagan sees that. Even an unbeliever sees that. And they're not going to mess with it, and they're going to promote you, and they're going to... Yes, there's times of persecutions, but so often what happens is that they wind up promoting you, and um, you get into positions of power. And so let's talk about favor. We'll, we'll um, listen, to, listen to this. It says, To Ezra the priest, ascribe the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in, which is in your hand. Now, again, this is like a shocking thing to me, that here's this pagan king telling people, hey, this guy Ezra is going up to Jerusalem. If you'd like to go with him, and the purpose of you going is to bring the law of your God. So somehow, it just get, it, 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 he gets favor. Ezra had probably made this request, and, um, and Artaxerxes is, is giving him basically what he wants. And it's interesting, it's coming from a pagan king to, it's, it's almost like if, uh, with all, you know, Respectfully, if Joe Biden said to the people of Calvary Chapel, hey, you guys, I want to build a, a church or I would want to do a work in a church, would you guys cooperate with your pastor? 
It's, it's kind of like that. It's, it's odd here. I mean, he had been given so much favor. Perhaps, perhaps it's because otherwise the people would have been fearful to go back with Ezra, so now they know they're allowed to go back with him. It says, verse 15, And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the provinces of Babylon, along with the freewill um, offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem, now, therefore, be careful to buy with money bulls, rams, lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in, in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay it, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasures who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the, of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? And so part of this may have been superstition on his own part. Or maybe it's not superstition because it is true that God will give favor even to an unbelieving um, governor who is gracious with his people. And so part of his motive here, though, is, I mean, he, he wants to prosper in his reign. It's a, hard, it's a hard job being a king of kings. When you're a king of kings, man, you have a lot of problems. Your whole life is about problems. They're being problems to you every day. And he wants help with that. He said, why should the wrath of, the God, of God be upon me, in verse 23 is what he says. So that's part of the reason he's doing it. Also, we inform you, so he's talking here to all the Jews. This is very unusual to me. We inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, the Nethanim, or servants of the house of God. So he's not allowing them to tax any of the Levites. By the way, every pastor um, is granted this by the United States government, which is a remarkable thing in our country, that they're granted a certain percentage of their salary is not taxed um, if it's used for basically anything to do with your house, to pay for your rent or mortgage or your, your water bills, your electricity bills. It's actually the law of our country. It's a remarkable thing. There are people trying to take it away. 
but um, that is the current law of our country. And you, Ezra, verse 25, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. So this is why Ezra is going to Jerusalem, to teach people the word of God. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be speedily executed on him, whether it be by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. So he just adds that in. I was thinking that that's sort of extra biblical because um, there's only certain things in the Bible where, where death or banishment is, is, is really a part of the law of Moses. But uh, this king really wants people to obey his decree. You know, I, I just, uh, this is a remarkable thing. He's, he's going, and again, the end of verse 25, uh, the reason is to teach those who do not know God. I highly recommend that um, if you've never done this, just to go and listen to, to Chuck Smith tapes from Genesis to Revelation, or you can listen to Steve Cole tapes. We have them as well. It's, it's not tapes anymore. It's, it's just on the Internet. And just do in your in in your commute or wherever you are, just be listening uh, to the Word of God online. To to make all these books, including the ones that are slightly more obscure, friends rather than strangers. There's other really good teachers, uh, Joe Foch and Damian Kyle. They're just, just plugging them in and listening to um, them. It's just so important. He's going there to teach them the word of God. It's a very sad thing when God's people are ignorant of the word of God. We are going to find out that it's going to be the case with these people who he's going to find in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king of his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon you. Do you guys see the hand of the Lord your God on your life? Do you see that? If you're walking in the Spirit, the hand of the Lord your God certainly is upon you. Do you see it though? Do you recognize it? Do you let them know? Or rather, do you let him know? I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So he, it says in chapter 8, these are the heads of the father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. By the way, I forgot to say this. I love how it says in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify 
the house of the Lord. I don't think he's talking about anything other than beautifying, which means make beautiful the house of the Lord by building up the people in the word of God. The house of the Lord is not a beautiful place if the people don't know the word of God. What makes the house of the Lord a beautiful place is when people in there know the word of God and they're doing it and they're living it out. And there's just a recognition of that um, uh, here because the clear, the, the, the clear um, teaching of this chapter is that he's not going up to add timber, to add stained glass windows to the temple, to uh, make ornaments out of pomegranates. Uh, I mean, not ornaments out of pomegranates, but uh, um, uh, make ornaments in the shape of pomegranates like in the original temple. And uh, he's not doing that. He's making it beautiful by teaching the people the word of God. And so verses um, 2 through 14 are the leaders who go up to Jerusalem with him. 900 miles, a four-month journey. If you add all the numbers up, it's 1,514 leaders or heads of families, and scholars say probably about four, four to 5,000 Jews coming up at this time. The first time they came back to Jerusalem, anyone remember what the number was? The initial regathering? 50,000. So there was 50,000 people there that had originally gone, but remember, 58 years have passed by, so there's more than that now. So here's another group of 5,000, and they are going up to infuse the people with the Word of God. I, I just have this lovely picture in my mind. It's a powerful picture that what I do for a living, it's, it's kind of like you know, like a bike pump, except not pumping air. I'm pumping the Word of God into Boston. I think of myself in that way. And it's just like pumping strength and health into the city. That's what I do. And that's what you guys too, is you're teaching the Word of God to your children or in Sunday school um, or at church in some capacity. You just literally pumping the Word of God into your community. And what it's doing, it's salt and it is light and it is health. The Word of God. Uh, the elders and I, for an elders retreat, are going to be reading this book uh, about England before and after John Wesley. John Wesley led a huge revival in the 1700s in England. George Whitfield, who was his friend and counterpart at college, they met at college, was, did it in America, called the First Great Awakening, just a crazy, insane revival in this country. And 
the, what the writer does is he just describes England before that revival. The Puritans who knew the word of God were heavily persecuted. Uh, many of them fled the country, and the country just was just... I, ha I was a history major. I didn't realize it was this bad. You, you, literally, the king had 10 legal mistresses that everyone knew about. He actually made kids of these mistresses barons and dukes, and, and just everyone knew about it. He was li it, it, it. And by the early 1700s, the, the king was living in open adultery. So was the prime minister. Living in open adultery, the meaning the president, the, uh, uh, the, was just living in open adultery. And, and the whole nation was suffering. Why? Because the Puritans, for all their faults, they had been banished from the country. They had, they had been jailed. They, they, there was, the law against them preaching the, the, the word of God was just so extreme. That's why um, America was populated by people fleeing England, the, 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 the pilgrims. And just what happened during this revival with John Wesley, who was the father of the Methodists, where he was just all about getting everyone to read the Word of God. And then after that, you have the abolition of slave trading, ab abolition of slavery, all these uh, laws against child um, uh, labor. And it's just a remarkable history of what happens when people read, the, the a, a, a nation reads the Word of God. And... Uh, one of the things that's re just really interesting to me, and we've already read it, right? Like in the, in, in, when we studied Manasseh, 50 years, it says they lost the Bible completely. That's all it took, 50 years. And all, all it takes is a, a generation or two for a nation just to go way, way, just plummet. And, and all it takes is just going away from the Word of God. And so... I'm very thankful in our country, with all the craziness that goes on, there's a lot of people teaching the Word of God out there. Um, and I'm very thankful for that in, in the United States of America. So they, you have this 5,000 people um, coming back to Jerusalem. It's a second wave of people from Babylon. And they're all about going back to teach the Word of God. And... It says in verse 15, now I gathered all of them by the river. So they're in Babylon. They're about to go back to Jerusalem. It's 900 miles away. I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. So the king had um, given these orders. Look, anyone who wants to go back and help um, with teaching the word of God, uh, Join Ezra. And, and so Ezra waits to see who shows up, and none of the Levites came. And this is a problem because the Levites were the teachers of the law, and they were also temple workers. And none of them show up to go. And so it, it, it sort of, some of, it, some of that, that shows the spiritual temperature of, of the Jews who were living in Babylon. Verse 16, then I sent for Eleazar, Elio, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elnathan, two Elnathans. Um, in fact, there's two, El, is there two, no, there's, there's two Elnathans and a Nathan. Zechariah and Meshulam. Leaders also for Joab and Elnathan. There's three Elnathans. Wow. <laughs> Men of understanding. And I gave them a command 
for Eli, the chief of men of the place, Kesaphiah, and I told them what they should say to Edo and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place of Kesaphia. The Nethanim were workers in the temple as well who were not Levites. That they should bring us servants for the house of, uh, of our God. So he wants temple workers there. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, so there you have it, again, you have that phrase. Is the hand of the Lord God upon you. They brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, named Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, his brother and sons, 20 men. Also, the Nethanim, who David and his leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. All of them were designated by name. And there I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. I highly recommend fasting from time to time. I should do a message on it on Sunday morning at some point. Why do you fast? Um, the, the easiest, the best verse I know about fasting is the one that Jesus quoted to Satan. It's from Deuteronomy. Is it chapter 8? Where Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so fasting is a way where it's like a physical way of denying ourselves of natural strength as a message to the Lord, I need your strength, and my natural strength ain't going to do me no good in this situation. And um, it could be, why do you fast? It could be like this, where you have something big coming up, Maybe you do, well, maybe you lost your job, or maybe you lost a family member, or maybe you have to confront someone, or maybe you have some big deal, and you really need the power of God in your life. And you fast. You go without food. I myself do water. And every time there's a pang of hunger that comes up in me, I quote the book of Job. <laughs> which says, God, yeah, I'm hungry, and I, I want something to eat, but I need you more than I need food. That's a verse in the book of Job. And I want you more than I want food. And by the way, even if there's no big thing going on, just if you're feeling a little dry, I want to just take a day or two to fast just to Seek the presence of the Lord. God, I want your presence. I want you more than I want food. You know, when your body starts attacking you. Pizza, 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 whatever. You know, I find it's harder towards the end of the day. If I, um, you know, when there's like, you're walking around and there's a, uh, 
whatever Dominican restaurants and you're smelling empanadas or whatever, uh, it's not easy. Although Venezuelan empanadas are much better. But anyway, that's just my bias. Um, fasting is, is, is something important. But So here they're going to go on a long and dangerous, as we're going to see, dangerous journey. And it's just a way for them to say, Lord, we'd be fools to be relying on our own natural resources. That's what fasting is about. Anyone have any questions about fasting? I'll take questions if you have any questions. Anyone have any questions about fasting? Anyone? Did, 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 I, did, did I just explain it perfectly? Apparently not. Three hands went up. What, what did you say, Lena? The question is, do you have to be literally praying all the time? You do have to pray, otherwise it's a diet and not a fast. Um, but no, you don't have to be praying all day long. Just pray at designated times. Jeremy, what's your... You mean physically? I, I mean, I, I don't think you should do two days initially. Um, myself, I, I do think you should seek the Lord about it. And if you've never fasted before, I suggest writing out things that are really on your mind that you want to pray about and um, just writing them out and referring to them you know, in the middle of the day you know, throughout the day, and just going through things. In other words, preparing for the fast, just writing out um, things that you really want to pray about and seek the Lord about. Manuel, did you have a... Um, again, I think the most important thing of every fast is to seek and desire the presence of the Lord. That should be your number one thing, even if there's some disaster you're facing. Because there's, my, my devotion time this morning, it was just so, oh, so incredibly aw, um, awesome. It just, it was the a Bogotsky devotional, and the first three lines were, faith seeks only Christ. And I just, that one line just took me for, tw I just enjoyed that for 20 minutes. I was like, this is most perfect. How, Lord, how more, more timely could you possibly be at this moment than those four, four words? But for fasting, that should be it. Should you limit yourself? Oh my. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. If you should limit the amount of things that are on your mind. Um, it's just, I guess it's just something that you should pray about. If you've never fasted before, I would. I would limit it the first time that you've done it. I would just try to, yeah, I'm just gonna focus on these things. Um, but but uh, that's a hard, hard question to answer because there's no formula for these things. 
you know, it's the spirit does them. I will also say, my uns- no one asked this question, I personally don't think it's a good idea to fast when you're working, like your job, because I think you don't want to rip off your employer. Uh, you want to give your employer your best. And also, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how you pray effectively. I'm sure there's people out there that can do it. I don't recommend fasting at work. Um, I remember having a friend who fasted once a week at work and his boss called me in at one point because he knew I was a Christian and say, you know, this guy, his work is terrible. I don't know what I'm going to do with him. Uh, It may not have been because he was fasting every week, but it did dawn on me. Of course, I didn't tell his boss that, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't fast. But, but if, if you're fasting at work and you, you feel like you're doing a great job, maybe I'll do a better job for all I know. But I would caution you. Yes, Eldon, did you have a question? Well, there's no rules on fasting. So the question is, the question is um, should, should it be all day or a certain portion of the day? Um, there's just no rules um, on it. It just kind of, um, the, the issue is what's available to you and um, just sort of the level of intensity um, that, you want, uh, that you want to do it. Uh, there's, 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 really no, there's really no rules. Yeah. So, yeah, Katya? Yeah. Um, the, and so the question is, uh, is, is fasting limited to food, for example? You know, if you regularly eat chocolate every day. Um, I, I think, personally, the fasting that you see in the Bible, I'll probably be in the minority of Calvary Chapel pastors with, uh, answering this question, but I think fasting in the Bible means you're going without food. I think if, if, you, if you go for a month without uh, beef jerky or something that you eat every single day or meat or something, it's just something that's just something different, has a different purpose. Fasting is sort of an intense um, driving after the Lord because your body is you know, being deprived of something, so you have this constant reminder of how much you need the Lord. I'm not sure that would be accomplished if you didn't, if you just withheld something. That's just my opinion on that. Any other questions about this? It's a powerful thing, fasting, it can be. So they gathered. I proclaimed a fast, verse 21, at the river, river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions. Verse 22 is interesting. For I was ashamed 
to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying the good hand of our God is upon all those who for good who seek him but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and treated our God for this and he answered our prayer. So they had told the king look God is um, God's hand is on us and so Ezra felt like to ask the king for a military escort would be a bad witness to the king um, because he had just said, essentially, we don't need it. Um, and so, yeah, they fasted about it. Now, some of you are thinking ahead to the book of Nehemiah because you know that Nehemiah asked the king for a military escort and got it. And so there's no legalism. There's no hyper-spiritual thing here. Uh, you get to go with what the Lord is telling you uh, to do. Um, but they, part of their fasting, and I'm sure this increased the intensity of their fasting, was fasting for safety. And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, Verse 25, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the kings and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were uh, present had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents and, and 100 talents of gold. 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles of the, um, are holy also. The, the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests of the Levites and heads of the Father's house of Israel in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So what he is saying there is uh, here's exactly the weight of what you are bringing and make sure when they weigh them, when they get to Jerusalem, it's exactly the same. But what's encouraging to me here is this is a ton of money. A hundred talents of gold, uh, verse 26. And again, there no, doesn't seem to be many specific references um, to doing an addition on the temple. This is an investment in the word of God. And, you know, I did three successive messages in, earlier this year on, on tithing and offering. And um, by the way, the offerings are up the first six months of, of, um, of 2023, which is, which is great. But I, there's nothing better to invest in than a ministry of teaching and declaring the Word of God. And the fact that there's, there's a lot of money. A <laughs> uh, hundred talents of gold is an extraordinary amount of of money, and it's being used to invest in, in this. But there's nothing better to invest in in the whole world than the teaching of the Word of God. And that's why Ezra is, is going up there. 
It says in verse 30, So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold, the articles by weight, to bring them to the Jerusalem, to the house of God. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us. Is God's hand upon you. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So they are, uh, in tr there, there's bandits and that kind of thing. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God. So here they are checking to make sure the gold and silver that left Babylon arrived in Jerusalem with the same amount. By the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and within uh, with him were Eleazar the son of Phineas, with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Nodiah the son of Benui. With the number and weight of everything, all the weight was written down at the time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 20, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the, um, in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. So first things first is they give a burnt offering to the Lord. God wants the first of everything. He not only wants it, but he totally deserves it. He deserves all of it. He deserves all of our lives. A burnt offering. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, Offer your lives as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And that's a reference to burnt offerings in the Old Testament, in which the whole animal was put on the altar and burned. It was the offering of complete consecration. And that's the first, they, they put first things first, and they're all about the Lord. And, um, and so there, here you have it, this band of people who is um, arriving there in Jerusalem um, for the purpose of giving the word of God.